0: Hello and welcome to the EMG Health Podcast with me, your host, Dr Jonathan Sakia. Today I'm joined by Dr Brian Buckley, who works in the Department of Radiology at the Mater Misericordiae University in Dublin, Ireland. I believe that the Latin name means compassion or mercy. Brian was educated at Gonzaga College in Dublin, named for St. Aloysius Gonzaga, and then went to Trinity College in that fair city to obtain an undergraduate degree in economics and business before going to University College, also in Dublin, to study medicine. The newly minted Dr. Buckley commenced training with his internship, senior house jobs, and now his specialist registrar training in radiology, And in 2017, he obtained his membership of the Royal College of Physicians in Ireland. Brian served as a member of the National Guideline Development Group in 2021 to develop guidance entitled Diagnosis and Staging of Patients with Prostate Cancer. And Dr Buckley has been honoured with the European Congress of Radiology Research Presentation Abstract Award and Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland Faculty of Radiologists Publication Award the boy's done good. You know, many of our guests are very well established, which is a polite way of saying older and somewhat later in their career. But Dr. Buckley brings a refreshing approach and has addressed some topical and fascinating uh, subjects that we're going to cover. So it makes sense to have this rising star on our podcast. When not practicing as a radiologist, the good doctor is a keen rugby player he captained the Mater Rugby Hospitals Cup team in 2015 and 2016, was a member of the All-Ireland League promotion winning team with Wanderers Rugby Club in 2015, and when he isn't battling with the oval ball, he hits the little white one with a aplomb and represented Milltown Golf Club in inter-club competitions and various levels in Leinster. Dr. Brian Buckley, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me on i uh i think i'll have to save that recording and play
1: it at any future interviews that i'm in it's very kind of you thank you (laughs)
0: you're a funny guy so um so brian tell us first of all what what took you into a career in radiology well radiology and
1: specifically the radiology department really is at the heart of everything that happens in the hospital from from my point of view and um, these days, almost every single patient that comes through the hospital doors will require some form of imaging uh, in one form or another, and they often pass through our department. Um, so, and even for many things, you know, we're kind of becoming the main point of contact for patients in their diagnosis and even treatment and even follow-up of certain conditions. Uh, so, as a specialty, you can imagine it very varied, you know, there's multi-different modalities, different diagnostic modalities. You have intervention, nuclear medicine. So it's very exciting um, and it embraces technology, uh, which is a big draw for me personally. Um, And obviously that kind of all together makes it a very exciting uh, specialty. So I think for me coming fresh out of college, radiology probably wasn't particularly on my radar until I started working and quickly realized how important these uh, people were in the hospital and how knowledgeable radiologists seemed. Uh, and then all these qualities that I described start to kind of come into the fore uh, for radiology as a specialty and quickly realize, you know, that this this was a specialty for me.
0: Well, you know, as a surgeon at a slightly different stage in my career, uh, I've, you know, obviously I've relied on my radiologic colleagues many times over the years and have been fascinated to see the genesis of uh, interventional radiology as a specialty and see the tools that they were able to do and some of the folks i've collaborated with over the years there was a boy there was a guy in um, in washington dc michael hill we were doing pegs percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomies for feeding and then he started yeah. doing them utilizing ultrasound and some people viewed this as a turf war if you will and it always struck me that that's dopey. It's about doing the right thing for the patient. Yeah. So um, I think you have chosen a specialty that's going to be at the centre of everything, really.
1: Yeah, it's quite. It's, yeah. it's funny that you mentioned that. Like, obviously, you have such an interest in kind of technology development and product development and innovation, and IR really is pretty much entirely about that, you know, a lot of these special, the specialties really probably in its infancy kind of as a, as a bigger picture and is always developing. I know this colleague, one of my bosses at the moment, Dr. Umar Salati, uh, in the matter, who is is doing ir created fistulas you know for people who are going on dialysis so they don't have to have these surgical dialysis uh, surgical fistulas and just seeing that technology which he's brought in created this uh, service within our uh, department it's quite incredible some of the the advancements that you're seeing and you know it's all coming down to these guys in ir who are coming up with ideas of how to do things better more kind of minimally invasive uh, which is obviously exactly what patients want you know they want minimally evasive shorter stay in hospital less complications and certainly IR seems to be able to to solve some of those solutions and, and provide better care in certain circumstances
0: absolutely in, in many circumstances well you know the thing that um caught our attention and, uh, and, and led to us wanting to get you on the podcast was an article you'd written uh, entitled in which you were you were the lead author, Radiology and the Climate Crisis: Opportunities and Challenges. This is something that's very much in our our focus at the moment, and this was an intriguing title um, to see. Talk to us about this. What got you involved? Tell you know, share with our listeners. What does the article say? Yeah, so
1: um, I suppose this paper really started. Uh, with uh, one of my bosses, uh, Professor Peter McMahon, who kind of had the idea or even the thought, he wondered what was the cost in terms of energy usage for storing say a chest X-ray um, for maybe a period of 10 years and whether you could create, put that uh, energy usage into something that was meaningful for people. So would it equate to like a, a car journey or a long haul flight? And then maybe could you extrapolate that to all the data that we as radiologists are now creating um, with these increasingly advanced diagnostic studies and bigger studies and kind of correlate how much uh, data we're actually using, how much energy that requires. And it's kind of an interesting point for us in Ireland, really, because... In 2008 Ireland started a a national integrated medical imaging system so all of our radiological and uh, cardiac imaging is all stored centrally in essentially a data center which uh, we then retrieve studies from remotely in all the different sites around Ireland and uh, so it kind of started as an idea of would we be able to decide how much a chest x-ray say was was going to cost in energy usage over 10 years but I suppose (laughs) as was Typical with a lot of research, it kind of runs into difficulties and we weren't really able to push on the project or advance it to the point where we felt we were going to get a, an accurate or a meaningful answer. So, uh, And certainly even the more you delve into these issues, if you're not an expert, you kind of start to develop, find uh, your ignorance is, is starting to take over and you there's a lot of things that you are you didn't realize. You thought it would be a simple question when you started out. So really the, the project then morphed into, we still thought that this idea of, data usage in radiology was quite novel or unique and nobody had really been talking about it. Certainly within, you know, climate change, uh, within medicine is, is not really a, a big topic. It's certainly a hot topic, but it's not something that there's a lot of research about. And within radiology, we felt that this was an area that was overlooked. So we wanted to, to do something and uh, this is what we kind of settled on. It's more of a, a, a general paper that's really aimed at residents and talks about radiology and its impact on the climate crisis uh, and really what are the opportunities and challenges that it presents. And hopefully we were trying to present some of the problems uh, in a more positive light in the sense that a lot of the issues or a lot of the contribution that radiology has to climate crisis and climate change and, and emissions are kind of really born out of inefficiency. Um, and they they seem on the, on the surface things that are quite fixable so there's a lot of opportunity to reduce the specialties footprint essentially and that was kind of the idea of the of the the paper and so the paper is kind of a more broader uh, look at radiology and its impact on the climate uh, while also raising this kind of probably previously unthought of impacts. that is uh, data storage and data usage and the huge energy
0: requirements that, that are associated with that. It's fascinating. It's something I'd never have thought of. Uh, a mate of mine who does consultancy work was telling me that they go into a company and ascertain that you know computers are left plugged in. They're only used eight hours a day, five days a week but they're left plugged in 168 hours a week and across a large company that constitutes a massive amount of energy and a massive cost. Can you give us the cost to store a chest x-ray for 10 years or a corollary, how many light bulbs, so on and so forth?
1: I I think I we hope to be able to do that at some point in the future, but at the moment, um, we, we're not able to give you an accurate answer. But as you say, like you're describing computers being left on and that kind of that kind of thing as being a kind of inefficiency of resources and certainly the radiology department is is no different and it's is probably even worse so obviously we use these advanced diagnostic imaging tools which like ct and mri and mri itself uh, can't actually be turned off at any point so it must be on constantly I uh, didn't it's, know that. Yeah. Wow. So the, the energy kind of magnetic field is created basically by these huge voltages uh, of energy, and so it can't be turned off at any point. So it must be continuously cooled even when it's not used. Uh, and the cooling systems is where the energy drain is on these these imaging, these kind of advanced imaging systems. So they require a huge amount of energy to cool. So I know one study had recently, I think out of Switzerland, looked at uh, their department, which was three CT scanners and four MRI scanners over the course of a year and found that um, the energy usage of of those machines over a year was the equivalent of the typical energy usage of a town with 850 people in it, you know, so um, it's not insignificant.
0: My goodness,
1: not insignificant. So
0: I'd like to think about some other environmental impacts, if you will, of your specialty. I recall when I was training, I was a medical student and junior doctor, walking past the radiology department, and I used to love doing photography and developing pictures, you know, had my own little uh, lab in my my room. Um, And walking past, it smelled like a chemistry lab. There were bottles of noxious chemicals in every corner. And I always wondered what happens to the old chemicals. And then there was the musty storage rooms full of silver rich old films in massive beige cardboard folders invariably filed in the wrong place what are some of the other environmental impacts that you can uh, think about in terms of radiology
1: um well certainly like like we were describing about that the data usage like i think even back in what you're describing like the analog days you know those films had to be stored in a physical location and even in the digital radiology world that's no different like i'm describing with um our system in NIMIS, which are stored remotely in data centers. And essentially, we're streaming images whenever we want to retrieve them from the data center, much like you would with if you're watching a, an episode of Netflix or something. So All that requires energy, and it's, it's, that was kind of one of the areas that we felt was overlooked. But I suppose more broadly then, aside from the, the diagnostic imaging, uh, CT, energy usage, MRI, that kind of thing, and the typical things that you would think of, like computers and reporting stations, lights and that, there is a significant impact on the environment through kind of a lot of our single-use disposable equipment, which I think is quite ubiquitous throughout the healthcare industry. You know, everything is single-use, um, and this obviously carries a footprint or a, or a kind of cost to the environment to produce, and then is is discarded, essentially. Um, and certainly uh, interventional radiology uh, would be a, a culprit of that. Um, but also air conditioning, I think, within radiology departments, specifically within uh, interventional suites. Um, I know there was a paper out of New York uh, in the last year, which tried to quantify what was the, um, the footprint or the CO2 uh, cost equivalent of one week's of procedures uh, in a teaching hospital in New York. Uh, and it was quite significant. It was in the order of nearly 60,000 miles travelled by passenger car, uh, equivalent of CO2 emission, and half of that was really coming down to air conditioning or um, temperature control within the interventional suite, uh, which is must be maintained or is maintained usually uh, 24-7, even when the room is not in use. Um, so, you know, again, there's just many, many areas that uh, we seem to be creating uh whether or there are many areas that are opportunities really for us to reduce this footprint um and which would seem easy if there was the the willingness or the the culture to change some of our
0: practices interesting what, what about other departments um and well are the radiology departments that you know of around the world uh is everyone thinking about this and other met- hospital departments
1: i don't think that it's certainly at the forefront of um you know, the management of radiology departments, certainly um, from what my kind of experience or what I've read, um, certainly in Ireland, I think our main, our biggest issue is always trying to deliver um, the best level of care that we can to our patients in a system that is so starved of resources, you know, in terms of just human resources, uh, but also actual uh, financial resources. So, you know, we're kind of, I think the day to day battle is just getting the best care for patients with what we have and the people that we have there, that I think that this often is an area that is maybe slightly overlooked or not considered as important because there are always these more pressing issues. I know that in the NHS that they have a unit set up for helping to deliver on some of the targets that the government have on reducing their... Uh, Footprints, a sustainable development unit, I think, in the NHS, Um, but they seem to be a body within the NHS that is helping the organization, the NHS, to achieve some of the goals, like achieving net zero uh, by 2040. And some of the results that they've had kind of within the NHS have been quite impressive. I think in 2018, um, they released a report which showed that they've been able to reduce carbon emissions by 18.5% between... Two thousand and seven and twenty seventeen, which you know is no mean feat, considering that the NHS is always a, is a similar system to ours, and that uh, it is kind of a um, starved of resources, and you know people trying to do the best with what they have. You know, I am not, I'm not too sure of things beyond that, and the UK of anywhere else that has uh, any more focal things to do with
0: radiology and reducing their footprint. Well, you know, as a surgeon, uh, we use a lot of kit in the, in the theatre that comes wrapped. And the amount of wrapping, you know, paper and plastic trays and Lord knows what. And I know this is becoming a subject of great interest and people have to have sustainable goals now. And I just wonder on reflection, the lights, all the lights are always on in a hospital. And it'd be really cool to know how much energy, not just how much energy is consumed storing a chest X-ray for 10 years, but how much energy a hospital consumes? And I think we all need to be alert about it and have lights that automatically go off in, in areas that, you know, people aren't. So, you know, good for you for bringing this to people's attention. Tell me, are there policies or laws in place in Ireland to try and reduce the impact that places like the radiology department has on the environment?
1: um i well more uh, on a kind of more national level the, the government as part of um their national european and international obligations they've committed to a transition to net zero and a climate neutral economy by 2050 and within that they're aiming to reduce emissions by 50% by 2030 and this is to achieve their aims you know and obligations uh, such as the cop 26 the un climate change conference Uh, which is aiming to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees in 2030. More specifically within healthcare in Ireland and what that means, I suppose we don't really know. There is no body within the HSE, which is trying to put policies or initiatives in place to achieve some of the targets that are being set out at a national or kind of government level. So we don't have a body such as the, the UK body, like I was describing, the Sustainable Development Unit in the UK. And certainly within kind of a more more focal level on the radiology department, there wouldn't be any specific uh, laws or policies even really with
0: regards to the, to the environmental impact of radiology departments. You know, sometimes one writes a paper, does a little bit of research and then moves on and that, there's a few other things that you've done that I want to talk about. But this is such an interesting and novel approach. Is this going to be all part of, you know, Dr. Brian Buckley's brand are you going to go out and do more about this drive for medical students and other residents and, heck, older doctors to start thinking about being green?
1: It um, was oh, uh, part of my brand. I don't know, Jonathan, maybe you, are you willing to be part of my PR team? I think.
0: Well, I'm doing that right now. I mean, listen, this is so important. You know, it, it, this is the health of our planet. I, I have to admit, I had not thought about this. I didn't know that an MRI machine needs to be on the whole time. I mean, which I think is probably I'm now publicly well no, I'm pro- there's you know, it's just between you and me, not telling anyone else. I you know, I feel ignorant. I'd never thought about this. And my guess is a lot of other people haven't.
1: Yeah, and I think that kind of applies to a lot of a lot of the issues around climate change really is that, you know, it kind of need it kind of is based around trying to get people to stop and think. Um, but certainly I think that it's not going to be possible really into the future to not have some sort of role or within uh, or stance within the, you know, um, enacting climate change policies. Uh, I think it's going to become an increasingly bigger issue for not only for, you know, us as humans on the earth, but, you know, even physicians, uh, doctors. This is obviously going to have an impact on people's health and it's likely going to most impact the most marginalized in our society so i think it is important for us as physicians really to advocate um for those future patients and and kind of enacting these policies or even at this early stage just getting helping people to to think about these problems uh, and to quantify them so that hopefully we can kind of come up with some sustainable solutions for the future.
0: As you were speaking, I'm thinking back to a couple of experiences in my professional lifetime. The first was when I was a junior doctor in, in the UK and there was a move to increase the presence of intercontinental ballistic missiles. And there was a move from, you know, one of the junior doctor associations that we should have a political position on this You know, this represented an existential threat to not only humanity, but all life on earth. And I remember thinking, I'm just a stupid junior doctor. Who's going to listen to me about anything? And then many years later on, living and working in the United States, I saw a colleague wearing a little lapel badge, you know, with no more handguns, no more guns. And I thought, well, I've looked after a lot of gunshot victims. I've pronounced people dead from gunshot victim, gunshot crime. I can't not get involved, but it always takes one person. The guy who walked around with that button on his, on his lapel was taking a risk because America is a very gun-friendly culture, but he was speaking out for what he believed in. So I would encourage you to, yeah, this should be a part of Dr. Buckley's brand and go shout it from the mountaintops. We'll certainly have you back on to talk about this, but I want to change the subject now. and um, and talk about something else you've been up to and invoke one of my favorite singers, Joni Mitchell. Um, She wrote a song called, a lovely song, uh, called Both Sides Now. It was originally recorded um, many years before, but she recorded it, I think, in the year 2000. And she recalls Cloud Illusions. Um, And it's just, it's such a, the lyric is beautiful and her voice is so plaintive. You co-authored a paper entitled uh, Pareidolia in in Radiology Education, a randomized control trial of metaphoric signs in medical student teaching. For those unfamiliar, please explain the phenomenon, which I believe is a tendency to perceive meaningful interpretations from nebulous stimuli, like seeing faces in a cloud. How is this germane to education? Yeah, so th-
1: this is a, a really interesting paper that I uh, was helping one of my colleagues, who's the, the lead author, Dr. Brian Gibney, um, who was in the matter at the time, is currently in um, British Columbia uh, as a, an uh, emergency radiology physician. Pareidolia is the tendency really to perceive a specific, often meaningful image in a random or ambiguous visual pattern and it really is uh, the ability to see shapes or make pictures out of randomness. And certainly when when you start off radiology and nothing on the computer screen seems to make any sense and you're trying to train your your mind to see uh, normal things and also abnormal things and understand what you're actually looking at, um, it's a really important or useful tool, I think, for identifying certainly pathology. And it's something that's kind of quite ubiquitous throughout radiology, you know, people describing appearances of things that look similar to maybe an everyday object or something that kind of triggers their memory. And so for this study, uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Gibney, had 50 students who typically rotate through our department throughout a year, and he randomized them into two groups, which one group was the control group, which just saw images and received like a didactic lecture on interpreting this image and what it meant and what the diagnosis was and then the other group which received the image but then also received the associated kind of sign or clue or pareidolia of what what that actually um, represented or what would have triggered in their mind to help them remember and then he tested the students a number of days later and he found that the use of these metaphoric signs in radiology increased not only their their interest, but also their descriptive ability and, and their short-term knowledge retention. So the group that received the, the pareidolia images had a higher level of retention of the, the actual diagnosis. So some of the examples that we used, Joubert syndrome uh, has a typical appearance of a molar tooth appearance of the cerebellar peduncles. Uh, there was another osteogenesis imperfecta uh, which on by bisphosphonate therapy produces these transverse sclerotic lines uh, of layering bone, which gives a zebra-like appearance. Uh, and then there was another, I think, uh, intracapsular rupture of a breast implant, which when it, the breast implant collapses within the cavity that uh, has been created, it kind of gives a, a linguine sign or a linguine pasta sign to help people remember. So these things are kind of ability to trigger within your, your mind, that it's an abnormality and what the abnormality is and help you remember what the what it's kind of pathology is associated with
0: Uh, it's it's fascinating and you know we do that a lot in medicine don't we we compare things to other things that you know tumors tend to be you know grapefruit sized or golf ball sized or so on and so forth um you also wrote a a similar theme you also wrote a paper that I led to I love medical history and allegory and your article entitled The Clothes Maketh Sign in Insights into Imaging was fabulous. I read it, sort of the, the whole thing, and boy, did I learn a lot. That's great. And, and by the way, I loved, I loved, I loved your initial comments quoting uh, Polonius speaking to laities in Hamlet. The apparel oft proclaims the man. Yeah, exactly, which has become clothes maketh the man, hasn't it, right? um so tell us a tell tell us a, a couple of quick examples from that that paper piece.
1: yeah this is a similar uh, very similar project obviously where one of um, my prior mentors Dr Carol Ridge who's actually working in Brompton in the UK at the moment who had been collecting some of these imaging signs uh, that we subsequently wrote up in the paper that we're we're talking about um and yes yeah, so that the Based upon the Shakespeare's Hamlet quote that the clothes make it the sign, uh, make it the man, and we obviously made that the clothes make it the sign. There really are so many um, imaging appearances within radiology that are similar or described like pieces of clothing, and and that's what we've collected here. So the typical ones are um, finger in glove, which you know can be seen in the Dawson fingers of MS with these pericolossal uh bright t2 lesions extending um particularly from the corpus callosum uh, there's also finger and glove within mucoid infection or bronchocele seen in bronchiectasis among other things uh signet ring sign for bronchiectasis uh, which describes the dilated airway and the accompanying adjacent pulmonary vessel um phrygian cap was another one for- yeah the phrygian cap
0: for gallbladders yeah i love- so. Basically, what, what you've done is you've assembled this marvellous collection of radiologic appearances um, and compared them to items, you know, that, that have a comparison to an item of clothing. What I really loved in the images, so for instance, there's um, small bowel obstruction looking like a, 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 a row of pearls. But you, you put the 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 item that you say it looks like next to the the radiograph or the bone scan or, or MRI, whatever, which is marvellous. It's like, oh, yeah, I see. I have to tell you, you know, and I've written a fair old amount about gallbladder disease, gallbladder surgery, and knew of the Phrygian cap. And folks who are listening who don't know about it, look it up. And I, I had never taken the trouble to look and see what a, Bloody frigging cap looked like. So, kudos to you. So, um, there was another um, paper that you wrote that addressed water enhanced anti grade magnetic resonance pyelography in pregnancy. Tell us about that and its implications.
1: Yeah, this was just an a, a interesting, novel, uh, descriptive case that we, we did. In a, there was a pregnant patient who had hydronephrosis and was septic, requiring a nephrostomy. Uh, and obviously that was done emergently, but um, to kind of identify what the cause was or even the level of obstruction, um, we can't obviously use gadolinium uh, and MRI for, for pregnancy. Uh, and we obviously can't use CT because of the risk of harm to the fetus. So uh, following the insertion of the nephrostomy, we basically injected sterile water into this nephrostomy and did which what, what was essentially a water-enhanced pyelography in the MRI scanner and used what our kind of sequences that would be typical used for MRCP. They're known as T2-weighted echoplanar fast spin echo sequences, and they give very high resolution for water. So using this technique, we were basically able to avoid gadolinium, which we couldn't give, and uh, ionizing radiation, which is harmful for the fetus. And we're able to use water to demonstrate the level of obstruction, the pelvic brim, which is a common level of obstruction during pregnancy causing hydronephrosis. And we were also able to demonstrate that there was no kind of obstructing stone or something that would require kind of immediate intervention. So it was just an interesting uh, novel technique, problem solving really
0: around um, a very specific patient population. It's oh, fascinating. It called to mind a paper I read years ago. Anyone who's um, prescribed polyethylene glycol for bowel preparation for colonoscopy. I've certainly done many, many colonoscopies and will freely admit that I've had it myself drinking that stuff. is darn hard work. And this paper was brilliant. It said, instead of just mixing the powder with water, mix it with a very well-known brand of cola. And I just thought, wow, what a brilliant approach to research you'll go anywhere to get funding. I asked this question to all my guests, three wishes to improve global healthcare. What would they be?
1: Yeah, I, I love that we're, we're leaving the easy question to the very end. I I suppose, you know, the past few years with COVID-19, which, which seemed to, on one level to bring the world uh, together, but also really showed up some massive disparities that exist between people in accessing healthcare and, and the equality of their outcomes between developed and developing worlds. So I think three wishes would, would go to improving the equality of healthcare access and outcomes across the developed and developing world. And I suppose final wish would have to be the, the resources to l- deliver
0: on that. Wonderful. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for in this episode of the EMG Health Podcast. And I want to thank Dr. Buckley, not only for taking the time to talk to us about his wide-ranging interests, but for being clearly such a, uh, such a fertile mind. And I can't wait to have him back on the show. Dr. Brian Buckley, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. So, folks, if you're interested in learning more about Dr. Buckley's work, please check out the show notes. And for more information on climate change, look out for the upcoming issue of the EMJ flagship journal. Thank you for listening to the EMG Health Podcast. And please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Like us on social media and tell your friends and colleagues. And, of course, if you didn't enjoy the, uh, the podcast, don't do any of those things. I'm Dr. Jonathan Sack and until next time, stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.